Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ryan Stroud. I learned something that night, which is you don't want to get sand on your penis. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just wanted to say we are now looking for December holiday stories. Stories about Christmas time, Hanukkah, uh, Kwanzaa, Festivus for the rest of us. All of those kinds of stories. Email us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions. It doesn't matter what part of the world you live in or whether or not we're coming to your city soon because we can do radio-style stories. So pitch us your holiday, your December holidays stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. And now a pretty little ditty to get them toes a-tapping. Oh, a trip to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or pack. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scanner. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use Stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code RISK for a no-risk trial. $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free postage. Go to Stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. <laughs> yep, you know it's our annual Halloween special, huh? And it's already sounding horrifying. <laughs> now here's the show. where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. <laughs> oh, there's a laughing man. Oh, oh my goodness gracious, there's laughing and screaming all over this track by the Dick Someone Orchestra. <laughs> it's, it's the Dick Jacobs Orchestra, but I prefer to Dick Someone. I couldn't care less if they're named Jacob. This is our annual Halloween episode, folks. This is the eighth installment of our Scary Stories series. We're calling it EGAD this year. In just a bit, we're going to hear from Michaela Murphy. But first, we're going to hear from my friend Ben Grant in Los Angeles. He shared this story at the Risk Live show there. It's a story we call Scream.
Thank you, sir. Uh, that was fun. This is a ghost story. I am from the South. My family is very Southern. And we're, we're from a small town called Murfreesboro, which is 30 miles south of Nashville. And my, my whole family lives there. And they're, they're very Southern. And they, they, we believe in ghosts. I was raised with a family that, that very much believes in ghosts. And so I, I grew up hearing firsthand ghost stories. My brother and two uncles work for the National Battle Park Service because uh, in Tennessee there's a lot of uh, Civil War battlefields and the Park Service runs them. So you'd hang out with those guys and those guys camp overnight on the Civil War battlefields and they have they see stuff. They see stuff on the battlefields and they, they tell you about it. And my family has many stories like that. And my, my mother's parents house was haunted apparently i never saw anything never ever but many of my my family members did it was an old farmhouse and the kitchen had carpet which never (laughs) struck me as weird at all because i grew up on that kitchen floor you know I, i learned to crawl on that kitchen floor and it wasn't until i was a teenager that i i thought Kitchens don't have carpet. That's disgusting. Like, why, 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 why is there carpet on the kitchen floor? And I, and I asked all my aunts and uncles, do you know why there's carpet on the kitchen? Was this always the kitchen? Why did they do this? And everybody didn't answer. And eventually Aunt Susan said, don't ask. Um, years ago, um, my grandmother made my grandfather carpet the kitchen so that she wouldn't have to listen to the chairs moving around at night. And uh, I said, fuck, Uh, you know, like, and so I had family members who saw stuff in that house. I never did. So I grew up wanting to see it, you know, like I grew up wanting to meet a ghost. I, I wanted to run into a ghost. I thought like many of my family had done it. I felt disappointed that I never saw the ghost on the Stones River Battlefield, that I never saw the ghost in Uncle Steve's house, that I never saw that ghost. So this is my ghost story. I, I, I thought about this, and I, I can't swear on a Bible because I don't believe in the Bible. Uh, I, 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 I think it's a great book, a great book, but I don't think that uh, I would swear on my mother, but my mother just successfully came through chemo, and she's doing great. So swearing on her seems like, seems like bad luck. So all I can think of to do is to I'll look you in the eye and say, this is true. This happened to me. This happened to me the way I am going to tell it, and it's a ghost story, but this fucking happened to me. Okay, that's the best I can do. So, in my town, there was a, uh, an old abandoned building. It was an old hospital, and it was in the middle of nowhere, and it was very hard to get to, and it was abandoned, and the people who knew about it called it the asylum. It was never an asylum, and, I, and I've researched it. I, I like went to the Department of Deeds in Farragut and looked it up. It used to be part of Eastern State Hospital, and it was from the 1920s to like the end of the 30s. It was a hospital. When the 
Tennessee Valley Authority built a dam, a lake came, and it cut off this building so that there was no road to get to it. And so that if you were going to build a road to get to this hospital, it was on the top of this mountain, and you would have had to cut over the top of the mountain. And in the 30s, they just locked it up. So it was a hospital in the middle of nowhere. And it was very hard to get to. You had to drive down this gravel road past a church, and you had to park off in the weeds because there was no trespassing sounds everywhere. And you would walk through this path, and there and there was this little field, and there was this three stories. It looked like this fucking Edward Gorey, just like three-story building with a basement. Because nobody knew how to get to it unless you had been there, it was remarkably vandalism free like it was it was shocking when i was a kid like you'd go there and like most of the glass was still in the windows the front half of the ground floor was offices and there was still office furniture there were filing cabinets that had files in them there was stuff on the walls there was a taxidermy deer in one of the offices like it was fucking perfect And there wasn't graffiti. There was a lot of rats and there was a lot of pigeons, but it was like you walked in and it was this big, cool, spooky place. People didn't know about it unless somebody told you about it. The first time I went there, my older brother took me there with another buddy and showed me how to get there. And we went through the woods and went through the path and sat on the porch of this place and had a six pack of beer. And I was 15. And so at the time, it was like the first fucking, like, I had a beer with like a couple of guys just like sitting and it wasn't a big deal. And so for me, this place was not scary at all. Like for me, this place was like fucking cool. Like it was always just interesting. I mean, I I love this place. And And my, my brother talked to me about the research he'd done and he showed me like when it was open and when it was closed, cause you could find the fucking files in the place. And so I never was scared of this place. I thought this place was so fucking cool. And then when I was uh, uh, like a sophomore, I had two friends in high school. They were awesome. And, they, and, I, and, I, and I took them there too. And we would go there with girls. And so you go there with girls and you scare the shit out of the girls, which is awesome fun. And so you take them through the creepy path of the woods and then you find the weird creepy like building and you go in and you're, you're scared of the girls. So I loved this place and I never ever for a second had any kind of negative vibes or anything. Uh, I mean, I had never done drugs at all. I'd had beer at this point. So my senior year of high school, I was in a play, the a Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine. Uh, and I played Groucho. Thank you. Um, and so we, we have the meeting that you do before high school play where they call off who has props that somebody in the play has access to. Who has a top hat? Anybody have a top hat? Nobody have a top hat. Fuck, we got to run a top hat. Bicorn. Anybody have a bicorn? Oh, Grant, you got a bicorn. Great, bring your bicorn. And then it got to Chase Lounge. There's a psychiatrist bit that's like a recurring bit. And, and so you need a Chase Lounge, like a psychiatrist couch. And Groucho is like, boom, boom, like jumps all over it. And you can't really do it with a couch because it's like a psychiatrist sketch. And there was one at the asylum. The bottom of the asylum had storage. There was like an old tractor. There was like boxes of shit. And there was a chase lounge. And it was this white wicker like chase lounge. And so I knew I could probably carry it. So I said, yeah, chase lounge on me. I got that. So I went to the asylum and I went alone 
And it, I wasn't like, oh no. I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll go too. And I didn't bring anybody else just because I didn't want them to know that I had stolen it because it was going to be like on the stage at Farragut High School play. So I park, I walk over the hill and I walk down the path and I go there and I walk into the place and I find the room with the chase lounge. And I'm being cautious because there's no trespassing signs everywhere, but I'm not nervous. And I pick up the chase lounge. And as soon as I pick it up, somebody behind me steps up and is right there, like right, right fucking there. Looking back, I don't think I heard them. I felt it. And I waited. And I didn't think ghost i thought fucking farmer you know i thought that it was going to be whoever owned the fucking place which i didn't know who that was like i I thought it was going to be somebody who was there to catch fucking kids stealing shit from the place which is what i was doing and i waited and i turned around and there was nobody there and i thought okay I'm fucking with myself. Like, I, I, I wasn't at this point convinced of anything other than like, okay, I'm paranoid because I just stole this fucking thing. And so I waited, and I walked out to the hall, and I said, hello? Nothing. It's like, okay, fine. So I picked up the chaise lounge, and I walked down the hall. You have to walk down this long hall to get to the exit off the back. And I walked down the hall, and as I'm walking down the hall, there five steps behind me. He is there. He, not they, he. It's a guy who's about a foot taller than me and he's there. And I walk down the hall and he's behind me and I don't look back because I know it's my imagination, but at this point I'm terrified. And I, and I walk back and he's right behind me keeping step with me and I go to the back door and I walk out the back door and I turn around and of course there's nobody there. And I look down the hall and there's nobody there. And I'm terrified, and I close the door, and you lock it with this chain, and I take the chaise lounge, and I walk around the corner of the building, and it's about 50 feet, and when you get to the corner of the building, there's a basement window that's right here, and there's the first floor window that's right here. And when I walk around the corner of the building, something from right here, not in the building, screams at me screams at me screams goes ah! like 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 screams at me and it echoes through the woods and at the end of it it goes ah! it's not in the building it's right fucking here it was 27 years ago uh so 27 years you know you're like fuck what was it what was it really you know you know what i mean it's either i'm schizophrenic or there's ghosts and I don't like either of those. Like, 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 but it did change me. I have no curiosity anymore. I never want to see a fucking ghost. Like, like it, 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 honestly, there are very few things in my life that I have no curiosity about. Gone. Like, it, it truly, like a fucking caveman, fear has overridden any curiosity. Uh... I think it probably didn't happen, but it was right fucking here, and it screamed at me, and I walked up to my car, and I carried the fucking thing, and I, it was in the play, and I never went back to the asylum again, and uh, happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I know 
know, I, I know that, but he's called six times already. Well, I'm babysitting and I'm here all alone. Well, I'm, I'm getting really scared. I am. You just trace the call, please. Will you just please do that for me, please? Will you just do that? Trace the call, please. I'm still watching you. Listen, you crazy bastard. I've already called Linda, the police. Linda, it's me, Sergeant Muldo. Check the other phone. We traced the call. Linda, the call is coming from inside your pants. Get out of your pants! Linda, do you hear me? For God's sakes, get out of your pants! Hi, thank you. Happy Halloween! Are you guys into Halloween? Do you believe in ghosts? Oh, awesome. You know, the writer Edith Wharton, um, in the intro to her book, Ghosts, wrote, I do not believe in ghosts, but I am afraid of them. <laughs> and that describes my boyfriend in the 80s, Larry, perfectly. He did not believe in ghosts, but he was afraid of them. He was an actor at this theater company, Shakespeare and Company, which was this resident company up at Edith Wharton's 42-room mansion, The Mount. The year after I graduated from college in the mid-80s, I was 21 years old, I was hired by Shakespeare and Company to be an actor and to perform in these plays during the summer. And then throughout the rest of the year, a couple of actors would stay on and we were performing venues and schools all throughout New England. And part of our pay was that we got to live rent-free in this mansion, The Mount. Now, the Mount is this beautiful, beautiful house. And at the time when Shakespeare and Company was there, it hadn't yet been restored. So there were rooms that needed paint, and there was like a leaky roof and some holes in the wall, and like the ornate plaster ceilings needed fixing. But you could still see the grandeur that was like this premier American Gilded Age home. The time like pre-income tax era of the Astors and the Morgans and the Vanderbilts. During the summer, there would be tours that would go through this house. And then at night, people would pack picnics, and they'd sit on the lawn, and they'd watch Midsummer Night's Dream or another Shakespeare play, and it was really magical. After the summer, the house would close up, and most of the company would like go out to different parts of the United States. And there were four actors, Larry and I included, who moved into this house. Now, during the summer... I'd heard these stories from some of the actors who had lived there about ghosts that lived in this house. And there were sightings of Edith Wharton or Henry James or some of her other literary friends. And I was so mesmerized by these stories. I wanted so much to see a ghost. And part of this was because a few years earlier, my dad had suddenly died. He was only 41 years old and I was 16. And so this idea that ghosts existed, 
that maybe I could see my father again and have this connection and it wouldn't be like he was gone from my life forever. So I really wanted to see a ghost. So we move into this house. So this house is 42 rooms. And on the first floor, there's like the kitchen and then there's this big dining room and a ballroom where we would rehearse and a library and a sitting room. And then on the second floor were all the bedrooms. And Edith Wharton's bedroom, which was like a corner room of the house, that had furniture in it. There was like a bed and like some bedroom furniture. And then the Henry James room had a bed in it. But the other bedrooms were pretty empty. So we moved like a futon and like milk crates, you know, like, you know, the actors, like young kids. We moved into this room and this room was really cool. It was like 16 foot ceilings that had these three huge windows and this marble bathroom with this extra long tub that was extra deep. It took like 45 minutes to fill this tub up. It was wild. So we move into this house and above the second floor, the third floor, it's like where all the administrative offices were. And I guess these were like smaller rooms, like the house help lived, kind of like Downton Abbey-ish, right? So that was upstairs. So we move into this house, and right away, it was like, it didn't feel frightening, but it would all, like when I was ever there alone, it would feel like someone was coming down the hall. It would be like, hey, how you doing? Like, I'm in here. And there wouldn't be anyone there. And then like one time, I thought I saw somebody pass by the bedroom door, and I went out into the hallway, and there wasn't anyone there. A couple, like after we lived there for like a week, I'd mentioned this, and my boyfriend Larry's like, I've had the same experience. And it was like, oh my gosh, is that like what the ghost thing is? You know, but we didn't really know. So that was what was happening. So then this one night, it's like the middle of the night, and Larry wakes up. He's like, wait, Michaela, wake up. So I wake up, and he is freaked. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? And he's just like, oh my God, oh my God. He woke up, and he said, the room filled up with this really bright, bright light. And he got so scared, he woke me up. And I was like, oh my God. And I was so bummed that I missed it. I didn't see it. I was like, and he was really freaked out. He was like, you know, I don't want any part of this. I was like, ah. So we go downstairs and we're talking about this. And one of the other actors living in this house is this woman. And she's like really into crystals and chakras and that book, you know, Seth Speaks. She's like, you know what you can do? You can get a ghost box. Now, apparently, there's this thing. It's called a ghost box. And it like, can be any box, apparently. And you just like leave it open. And this is like where the spirits can go into. You know, so Larry's like, but I'm like thinking, I don't want a ghost box in our room because, you know, we're a couple and we've talked about getting married, but we're still two different people. But will the ghost be able to discern this autonomy, you know, like, or was it going to see us like marriage, like we're one, you know? So I didn't want a ghost box in the room. So when I like say this, like the woman's like, there is another thing you can do. (laughs) And so she tells us that we can walk through the house like with a sage stick and like burn the sage and he can like announce to the presence there that he doesn't want to see ghosts. So he's walking through the house burning sage, like saying, I do not want to have any ghost sticks. And I'm behind him going, but I do. (laughs) You know, like he doesn't, but I do. And like after that, I'm walking around, like if there is such a thing, like trying to encourage the ghosts, like I'm nothing to be afraid of. You know, so I want to see a ghost. So about a week after that, so there wasn't a TV in the house at the Mount, but there was down at the caretaker's cottage, which was down this dirt road, maybe like a quarter mile. So it was at the time when that TV show Hill Street Blues was on. So all the other actors and Larry, they go down to watch this Hill Street Blues episode. And I have the whole house to myself. 
I'm going to take this bath. So, you know, I start the process of filling up the bathtub, which is like filling up a swimming pool. You know, and I locked the door to the bedroom. And it was when that album, Sting's album, The Dream of the Blue Turtles came out. So I like put that on. I get like everything all set up, light some candles, you know, it's like get into the bathtub, which is like so deep, I can almost float in it. So I get into the bathtub and all of a sudden, Dream of the Blue Turtles, it's like really loud, like wicked loud. And at first I'm like, is that really that loud? And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I get out of the bathtub and I go over to the stereo and it's on full blast. And I know I didn't put it on full blast, but whatever. So I turn it down halfway and I get back into the bathtub. And the second I get into the bathtub, it's like full blast again. And so I get out of the bathtub and I go over and I can see it's full blast. And I know I didn't do it. And I have this moment of like, like fear. But then I remember like, I have been walking around for weeks, like overtly inviting the ghosts into my life, you know? And like, I've been to charm school and this is Edith Wharton's house, you know, and she was this writer about like social mores and etiquette and manners. Like, what am I going to do? Like ghostess non gratis. So I just like decide in that instance that I'm not going to be afraid. So I just turn the stereo off. Like, okay, fine. We won't have music. And so I get back into the bathtub and I'm in the bathtub and there's this big window in the bathroom and all of a sudden this window starts like shaking and then it's closed and the curtains on it start to blow in and I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, bath's over. So, <laughs> so I get out of the bathtub and I get dressed and I'm in the house by myself and then I can hear this like faint piano music playing downstairs. But there isn't a piano in the house. So I go out into the hallway and I start to go downstairs and then I kind of like, it's fine. What am I doing? It's fine. It's the ghost. This is what I wanted, right? So I go down. It's like the piano music is in like the next room. And then I go into the next room and like the piano music is still in the next room. And then I can hear like what sounds like somebody's moving, like moving a piano like upstairs. So I go back upstairs and it's coming from the third floor and there's no one there and it's totally dark. So I get a baseball bat and I like start to go up the steps to this third floor, but there's nothing there and it's total darkness. And I'm calling out like Kevin, who was one of the other, I was like, are you there? And there's that thing there, and then I'm kind of getting like, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I should go get Larry. Larry should participate in this. So, <laughs> so I go out, and I'm walking, I start to walk down this dark, dirt road towards the caretaker's cottage, and it's so dark. Like, that's what frightens me. I'm like, I shouldn't do this. So I go back in the house, and now, like, after being, like, out in the darkness, it's, like, really loud, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? So I go back into the room, and I relock the door, and I'm sitting in bed, and I can kind of convince myself, you know, that maybe we need a new stereo, and maybe, like, the windows need insulation, and, like, these are, like, annoying neighbors, and the thing is, it's, like, movie soundtracks have done a lot for ghosts. <laughs> Like, had John Carpenter's Halloween theme song been playing during this whole thing, I would have been freaked out of my mind. But it wasn't, so it was just like this noise, and it wasn't like anything else was happening, and so I finally fell asleep. And while I was sleeping, Larry came home, and I knew this because I woke up with a start at 2.04 a.m., and Larry was next to me, but he wasn't the only one in the room. At the end of the bed there was this guy, but he wasn't looking at me. He was kind of looking off like this, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's wearing this gray jacket, and he has like this maroon like scarf on, and he has a mustache and dark hair, and I'm looking at him, 
I can see him really clearly. And I'm like, and he's looking off, and he's just like he's not even aware of me. And then all of a sudden, I start to hear this. I think, is that Larry? And so I bend down to hear Larry, and Larry's breathing pattern is totally different. And I'm like, Larry, wake up. And when he wakes up, it all goes away. And so then he's just like, oh my God, we got to get out of this house. And I'm like, oh my God, I saw a ghost. Like, it's real, it really exists. And so I'm so excited. After that, like, I walk around like the medium of the mount, you know, and all these people are coming. And I'm like, yes, I've seen the ghost. No, it's true. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, and so I like hold court and tell all these stories. And as I'm telling these stories, there are other actors who are saying to me, oh my gosh, you should talk to this guy, Steve. He was an actor who had worked at the company years before. He used to live in that room. Something happened to him there. And I'm like, what happened? They're like, you really got to ask him. So throughout the rest of the year, like I'm open to it, but nothing happens. I never see another ghost. And then that summer... There's a reporter from the Berkshire Eagle who's getting an article ready for the fall about the ghosts, you know, of the Berkshire mansions. And someone tells him, oh, you've got to talk to Michaela because she's here to go. So he comes up to me. I'm like, oh, yes, I've got a story for you. So I start to tell him this story and I describe the ghost to him. And he's just like, is there anybody else I should hear? And it just so happened that that actor Steve was visiting the Mount that weekend. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes, we should go find this guy, Steve, because I've never heard his story. And he's apparently got some wild story that happened in the same room. So he's like, awesome. So we go and we find this guy, Steve, and I tell him what we're doing. And the reporter, and Steve's just like, no, 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 man, no, no. (laughs) We're like, no, it's going to be. And he's like, absolutely not. To the point where we're like, we totally want to hear this story. So the reporter, you know, is really savvy. He's like, hey, how about if you tell it to me off the record? You know, those magic words, you know. And so he goes, the guy's like, off the record? He's like, yeah, totally off the record. He's like, you're not going to write about it? He's like, no, I'm not going to write about it. And he's like, all right, I'll tell you. (laughs) So we're like, all right, let's hear this. So he tells his story. He is in the same room, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and the room is totally illuminated, but the room is completely different. It's like it, how it would have been decorated 100 years ago. Even his bed is like in another part of the room. And there's this guy in the room, and he describes the guy. He's wearing a gray jacket and a maroon scarf, has a mustache, and he gets totally freaked out, and he closes his eyes. And then he peeks to see if the guy's still there. And when he peeks, the guy is like above him and is like doing something with his hands. And he's just like totally freaked out. So he closes his eyes and he gets this overwhelming feeling like this guy wants him to jump out the window. Now, it's only the second floor, so he might break a leg. It's not like this death plunge, but he still feels like this guy wants him to jump out the window. So he peeks again and hears this, and so he's like panicking. It's like it's not stopping. And so he just like goes deep within himself, and as he describes it, all of a sudden this overwhelming word comes to him, God. And he makes this commitment in the moment that if this stops and goes away and never happens again, that he will dedicate his life to God. 
And he opens up his eyes, and the room is back to normal. And this guy, Steve, actually stops being an actor and becomes a priest. For real. Totally for real. So, like, the reporter and I are sitting there like, wow. (laughs) You know, and so I say, I totally did not have that experience (laughs) at all. Like, it wasn't frightening to me at all. And he's like, well, it should have been. You don't know. These spirits, like, they're lost. They're not at peace. They're not in the afterlife, and they're not alive. You don't know who that, what they're looking for. You don't know what they want you to do. I was like, yeah, but I was just like hoping that I could maybe see my father again because I miss him so much. And he takes my hands and he says, you should be grateful that your father's soul is at peace and that he's not wandering around because, Michaela, that's what death is. And so after that... I didn't see another ghost. And maybe it was because we had a ghost box that we kept on the mantle, the fireplace in our room. Because I do believe in ghosts. And I'm not afraid of them. But I respect them. And I do wish that they would rest in peace. Thank you. Michaela Murphy! Makes me wonder just how many ghosts it would take to turn me into a priest. This is Risk. This is the White Stripes behind me now. And we just heard from Michaela Murphy, who you can find on Twitter at Big Alice NYC. Now, before we get back to the story, I really want to encourage you to go check out Article.com. Article has completely rethought the way that furniture is traditionally produced and sold to deliver furniture that is both gorgeous, I mean really beautiful, and quite affordable directly to your home with a well-thought-out collection of modern and mid-century modern pieces to choose from, thousands of positive reviews, radically lower pricing, and a 30-day no-questions-asked return guarantee. You'll see why more and more people are getting better value, better experience by buying furniture online from Article. I got this gorgeous new couch that... I have never owned a piece of furniture that looks so nice. I'm telling you, I'm loving it. And very, very affordable. And I was just very impressed with how helpful they were when they delivered it, put it right up. I can't say enough. Visit their website at article.com slash risk. Because listeners of Risk will get $50 off your first order. That's 
article.com slash risk. I also want to talk about the best mattress I have ever slept on. I've been tossing and turning throughout this election season. So now I have this new mattress from Lisa.com, L-E-E-S-A.com. Ordered the mattress online. It came compressed in a box the size of a mini fridge. And I have never slept on a better mattress, period. Lisa has three-layer sleep technology. It's a perforated top layer that keeps you cool and provides the perfect cushiony bounce. The memory foam middle layer cradles and contours perfectly to your body, and the inner core provides that long-life durability and edge support. You're not going to get those dents in it. Lisa is 100% American-made, built specifically for you by using their universal adaptive feel sleep technology. You're guaranteed the best sleep ever. No more mattress store sales pressure or one-minute mattress auditions. Lisa is like the Warby Parker of the mattress industry. They donate one mattress to a shelter for every 10 they sell. Lisa gives you a 100-night risk-free trial. Love your mattress or they'll pick it up for free and refund your money. Order now and save $75 when you go to leesa.com slash risk. That's lisa.com slash risk and use the promo code risk at the checkout. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear a story that was sent in to us from Risk fan Alan Weber. But before that, we're going to share a story that was recorded at the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon, one of our very favorite storytelling shows in the country. You can find them at mysteryboxshow.com. This is Ryan Stroud with a story we call Firestarter. Thank you. It was September 10th, 2001. I was 23 years old. I was enlisted in the US Navy and I was on leave on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. And it was the end of my leave and I just felt like I needed a really special experience, something that would really nourish my soul through the coming weeks and months and years of going back to the grind of stoicism and discipline and spit and polish. So I asked a bunch of locals, where do I go? Where's the happening stuff happening? And a couple of them said, go to this place called Secrets Beach. Now, I've lived on the coast for much of my life, and every local spot has a Secrets Beach. So I knew, though, this would be a special place. I decided that I would go to Secrets Beach, I'd explore it for the afternoon, I'd spend the night, and in the morning, I would begin my journey back to my base on the mainland. I decided to go full bohemian. I was wearing nothing but a pair of pants, which as the day began to heat up, turned into a terrible idea 
because as I was hitchhiking down the road, the asphalt started heating up and burning my feet. But eventually I got a ride and the ride took me to a dirt road and then I got out of the vehicle, jumped a barbed wire fence and I hiked across this cow pasture. And then I came to this cliff and I looked down and I saw the most beautiful white sand beach stretched out for a mile and the ocean glittering like diamonds as far as the eye could see. And I knew this was the place. I found this trail and I made my way down to the beach and I slowly walked from one end to the other. And when I got to the far end, I found this cluster of tide pools that had been warmed in the sun and there's a small group of hippie looking people in there naked, arms stretched out, having a great time. And, you know, I, I'm very comfortable with public nudity now, but at the time, I was a little outside of my comfort zone, but I've always been kind of a rule breaker too, so I was like, I'm going to go with it. And I took off my pants, and I got in the tide pool that they were in, just enough distance from them that it wasn't too awkward. But again, I was in the military at the time, and I was very stoic. I'm still kind of stoic. I've always kind of been kind of stoic. And I think I was kind of like harshing their mellow because <laughs> after maybe a little while, they got up and just left. So I'm laying in this tide pool with my arms stretched out. And I think, you know, this is great, but this could be better. <laughs> and I close my eyes and I begin to fantasize and visualize what would be better. I visualize that from behind a rocky outcropping, a beautiful woman with tan skin and long dark hair, wearing nothing but a white see-through sarong, would begin walking toward me. And I open my eyes, and from behind a rocky outcropping, a beautiful woman with tan dark skin and long dark hair, wearing nothing but a see-through sarong over her shoulders, a white one, begins walking straight toward me. Again, I was in the military. I got piss tested on the regular. This is not a drug story. I was totally sober. I could barely believe my eyes. And as she approached, it suddenly seemed kind of weird that I would just sit there while she's like directly gazing at me. So I got out of the tide pool, but then I'm standing kind of dripping wet in the sand and don't really know like where to put my hands. <laughs> and she walks right up to me and she leans down and picks up a stick. And she draws this big circle around us in the sand. And then in the circle, she walks up to me and she grabs both of my hands and hers. And she says, 
My name is Pele. Of course, I was like, well, hi, my name is Ryan, and how's it going, and where are you from? And she was like, with body language and visceral emotion indicated that she would not speak further, and I was not to press her further to speak. She was emphatic, almost angrily emphatic about that. And this seemed very weird to me, but I was already in this total limbic space of wonder, and so I just decided to go with it. We spent the rest of the afternoon together, and it was incredible. She went running down the beach, and I followed her, and we were laughing. She took my hand and led me out into the ocean, and we swam way out and then back, and we were body surfing, and there were sea turtles all around. Then we sat in the sand, and she was tracing the tattoos on my back. And then there was this moment when I started to get pretty hungry. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, I'm gonna go to this beach and guavas were in season and avocados. And I thought, oh, I'll just find some fruit while I'm there. But there was like no fruit on any of the trees. And I was thinking, okay, what am I gonna do? And I'm looking out to sea thinking about this. And I turn back around and Pele has this little coy smile on her face. And she has a pile of fruit in her lap. And then later in the evening, when the sun began to set, again, there was kind of a pause, a break in our interaction. And again, I was looking out to see. It was getting remarkably chilly. And I turned back around, and Pele had a fire in front of her. Now, I have lived half of my life in wilderness areas, and I've been to survival school, and I can make a fire with sticks, but it would take me like eight hours. <laughs> and it would have taken me two hours to make a fire on that beach if I'd had a lighter. And she did not even have a backpack, let alone pockets. <laughs> but she stood up and again came to me and she said the second thing that I ever heard her say. She said, and now this. And then she leaned up and kissed me on the lips and I kissed her back. And then we were just tangled in each other. And my hands were in her hair and they were on her breasts. And I slid a hand down between her legs and she was very wet and I got down on my knees and I slid a finger inside of her and I was licking her and I remember so clearly that she smelled like no woman I had ever been with. She smelled earthy like the jungle. And then she laid back and pulled me to her and we made love right there in the sand. And I want to pause for a moment to say that I learned something that night, which is you don't want to get sand on your penis. <laughs> I was being very cautious about that. <laughs> and there was this moment 
when the sarong fell away and I actually touched her shoulders and there were like these deep indentations in them, which I had never seen before. I've never seen since. And again, I thought that was kind of strange, but I was just going with it. And we made love until we were done, and then we laid there, curled up next to each other, and fell asleep in the sand to the sound of waves crashing on the shore. And when I woke up, it was maybe three o'clock in the morning. There was this really, really thick fog that had rolled over the beach. And Pele, I could barely see her. She was down at the water's edge, just barely could see her walking right there where the, where the water meets the shore. And I fell back asleep. And when I woke up again, it was mid-morning, the sun was bright in the sky, I was drenched in sweat, and I was totally dehydrated, and I looked around, and Pele was completely gone. But there was this man running toward me down the beach, and he has like this frantic look in his eyes, and he's waving his arms. And that's how I learned what was happening in that moment in New York City. And it was like I could see the twin towers falling in his eyes. And it was a couple of months later. The whole world seemed like it had changed. And I was trying to wrap my mind around these changes. And I was reading a lot about war. I picked up this book about myths of war. And much to my astonishment, I saw that there was an entire chapter about a Hawaiian goddess named Pele. So, of course, I instantly flipped to the chapter. What I read there utterly shook me to the core. It said that Pele, being a goddess, has many magical abilities. She can spontaneously manifest food and fire. She is a goddess of fire. It's said very specifically that you will recognize Pele in her human form because she has these deep craters on her shoulders, like the craters in cooling lava. And the final thing it said was that every once in a blue moon, Pele travels from the big island of Hawaii to the Hawaiian island of Kauai, and there she finds a mortal who she engages in a sex ritual that opens a portal that leads to a global war. Now, to be completely honest with you, I don't know. I don't know if what I experienced there was mere coincidence or something a little more synchronistic. Maybe 
It was a real mystical event. But what I do know is that after that, I was always a lot more careful about what I wished for. (laughs) And I was always a lot more cautious about who I hooked up with. (laughs) Because you just never know that that stranger at the bar or that stranger on the beach they might end up being a goddess or a god. (laughs) And I don't want to accidentally end up destroying the world. (laughs) Thank you. famous phantom is thought to be one of the creators of the islands. Her name is Pele, goddess of fire. She has appeared hundreds of times to Hawaiians and tourists alike. Those who have seen Pele report remarkably similar experiences. Often she will bring warnings of danger. Don't mess with Pele. Piss her off and you're done. I had to be about six, and I was playing outside in my front yard. We had a little white picket fence around our our house. I started hearing yelling from inside. You know, I couldn't quite make out what was going on, but I can tell it was frantic, it was loud, and it was definitely coming from my brother. When I approached the front steps, I started hearing my parents yelling and screaming as well. When I finally turned the doorknob and I entered, I saw my mother on the phone and she was frantically dialing, you know, a number, completely in tears. And my father was leaning over the kitchen sink, grabbing paper towels off the roll. He rushed into the living room and I followed right behind. That's when I saw my brother. He was, at the time, only about seven years old. And he was looking right at me. His face was red. There was tears streaming down his cheek. But... That wasn't the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing was there was a big pen sticking out of his chest. There was blood that was pulled around it. My father grabbed the paper towels and he was dabbing the wound. My heart was pounding. I had no idea what was going on through my brother's head. What happened, you know, if my parents stabbed him, if if he did this to himself. I soon realized that He had done this to himself, and I don't know where it came from. That was the first time that I've ever seen my brother in this state, but it definitely wasn't the last time. Andrew and I were very close. We played together all the time. It was always sort of like I was the younger brother that kind of tagged along. There was three bedrooms in the house, and we shared a room because we we were that close. Like, we just wanted... Like, I could have had my own room and spread my wings, and it would have been fine. But 
me and him, we shared a room and it was every day, all day. We always kind of knew where each other were. You know, I really looked up to him when I was, when I was younger. You know, I kind of wanted to be like him in many aspects. But as I got older, that completely changed and I wanted to be just the complete opposite. But that all kind of came from the events of one night. I feel like his changes in his behavior and his mood and his temper all changed after one night that we shared together. You know, a couple months prior to seeing him with the pen in his chest, it was a night that still haunts me today. Our bedroom was rather small. We kept all of our toys in the other bedroom, so we had a little bit more room. We shared a bunk bed. I was on the top bunk. Uh, he slept on the bottom. There was only one window which faced the street. I was always facing, my feet was sort of facing the window so I could kind of look outside of it. I remember watching the cars as they drive down the street uh, slowly, you know, going to their houses and their headlights would shine through the window and sort of light the room just for a couple of seconds as they passed. That activity of just watching the cars was what got me to sleep most nights. I found it somewhat soothing, you know. It was a night like any other. I was watching the cars and, you know, I drifted to sleep. It was the middle of the summer, but it wasn't quite hot. You know, it was sort of a breezy night. It was nice, you know. We didn't have to have the AC on or any fans. We just had the window open. I just remember waking up to this unnatural cold temperature in the room. It was this ice-cold, freezing temperature. It chilled you to the bone. It was, it was, for the middle of the summer, it just, it was unreal, you know? It was kind of strange in the room. There was this different air about it. It was still, almost, as well. There was no breeze coming through the window anymore. And I was lying on my back, facing out towards the rest of the room. I was looking straight at the dresser in the window, and that's where I saw this sort of shadow form start to develop. I started to make out something. It was almost like shaping. The very top was just above my mirror on my dresser. So it had to be at least six feet tall. And it appeared to be the figure of a man standing in my room. His head seems to be in a cylinder shape. It appeared to be a hat. There was the hat brim. And then I noticed the man's head underneath. It was relatively featureless. I couldn't make out where its ears were, his nose was, but I could see his eyes. I could see the white of them, you know, around where your pupil is. And he was staring directly at me. At this point, I was completely frozen. I couldn't move. I do remember just that feeling of someone staring, looking through you. That's when his mouth started to form. He parted his lips, and I saw his teeth. They were white compared to the rest of his bodies. I mean, they weren't pure white, but because he was so dark, it seemed that way. And he was staring at me for what felt like minutes, and then he blinked. And as soon as his eyes opened back up, his eyes seemed to turn red. 
and he started growling like a dog. It was similar to when you pet a new dog and they kind of growl at you because they're uneasy. They don't know who you are yet. You know, you got to get comfortable. That's, that's what it sounded like. Although I was terrified, my heart was racing. I was still frozen with fear. I could not yell. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't even move. I just stared. I started having these racing thoughts. I was, you know, thinking, you know, am I still asleep? Is this a nightmare? Am I really seeing this? But from the bottom bunk, I started to hear my brother. He was crying, and his cry gradually started to turn into a yell. And it was at that moment when he started making that noise that I felt like I could move. You know, my mind was still racing. I was like, is this real? Like, are we both seeing this? You know, that was the question that I that I sort of asked. And I remember peering over the top bunk, and I saw him laying on the bed. And he was almost hiding his face with the pillow. He was terrified as well. This was real. This was happening. There was someone standing in my room. So I shot back to the wall. At this point, I was looking at the man who was still growling. He seemed to be growling louder to sort of match our cries yelling for my father. The man, he wasn't moving. He stood in the exact same spot. He was looking at me, and and then he was looking at my brother, and I couldn't tell what he wanted, what he was going to do. And that's when I heard the sound of footsteps running down the hall. You know, it was my father rushing to a room, and he opened the door, and as he did, the light painted a line across the room. And as if the man didn't want to touch the light, didn't want to be in the light, he ran. It was almost sort of like he flew, you know, and he jumped out the window. Our window had a screen. It was on the second floor. There was no roof underneath, so it would have been a straight drop. It was almost like he went through the screen, but it was still there. The screen was still there. As my dad entered the room, he flicked on our bedroom light. He went over to the window, and he looked out, and there was nothing out there, you know. We were we were at this point completely in tears, my brother and I, and when my dad was done looking out the window, he turned to us and you know, he was asking us what was going on, you know, why we were crying, why we were screaming. And my brother just started he explained exactly, you know, what he had seen. He said, I saw a man standing in the room, he had red eyes and he was tall, you know, it looked like he had a top hat on. His mouth was open and I could see his teeth. He was growling at me. He was really loud and he was growling too. And that's kind of when I realized, like, we saw the same thing, you know. He didn't just happen to wake up from a nightmare, you know, like I had initially thought was happening to me. We saw this man standing in our room. That night was the last night that I've ever saw the man. But he kept haunting my brother in his dreams. When I saw the pen sticking out of my brother's chest, the only thing I could do was stare. And that was kind of like the first time that I noticed, you know, his personality was changing. We no longer were playing together and doing the things that we used to love to do together. You know, there was always this tension being built up. My mother told me, you know, this was the dream that my brother would have over and over. He would be standing in our living room and the house would be completely empty. There was a piano on the one side of our room. 
in that piano was sort of an empty corner, but that's where the man would just appear, and he would start walking towards him, slowly at first, giving my brother just enough time to react. He would turn and run, and he had no control over which direction he could go. I mean, he told my mom that he always wanted to run outside. You know, that was his instinct. That's where he wanted to go. But it was almost like he was drawn to the upstairs. So he would run towards the steps and start running up. And as he ran, the man would then run. He would gain on him so fast. And he would reach the top, you know, and at this point he would hope that there was someone up there, someone that could help him. And then he would just feel the hand on his leg and he would just get pulled down to the bottom. And that's when he wakes up. He, he doesn't see anything. Nothing happens. He just wakes up. When I heard about this dream, I realized that, you know, my brother was still being haunted by this man. So about five years passed. You know, at this point I was going into sixth grade. It was summer again, and my grandfather wasn't doing very well. He was in the hospital. We were on our way to visit him, and my dad insisted that we stop at a church that he saw. It was this Catholic church. You know, we hadn't been to a service in a long time. At this point, it was the middle of the week. It was in the evening as well, but the doors were still open. There is these beautiful stained glass windows on all sides. The center of the church had this very large marble altar. My father insisted that we go to a pew and we say a quick prayer before we go. When I looked around, I noticed there was nobody there. So my mother, my father, and I go to like just the first pew that we see. It's the very back. And we all kneel to pray. My brother refused to come stand with us. So he stood at the back, right at the doors, and he just, he had no desire to come in to say any sort of prayer. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to go. As I knelt down and I closed my eyes, I began to formulate a prayer in my head as best I could. And it was at that moment that my brother started yelling. He just started yelling, Mom, Mom, help, help. And I looked up and I saw him. It looked like he was being ushered forward. And my first thought was, he's messing around. He wants to go. He's trying to get our attention to go. But when I turned around, I saw this look of fear on his face. It was as if he had no idea what was going on. He was terrified. He was reaching towards us. And his body was moving forward and he was fighting with all of his might to go back. He was unable to turn around. You know, at first it was slow, but then, you know, it was almost as if he stopped resisting and he was being pushed forward at a faster pace till he reached the very front of the church, right in front of the altar. And then it was like that invisible force just vanished. He had control over his body again. And it was that moment that my dad just prayed loud and he was just saying the lord's prayer and i kind of had this thought that that invisible force was something that was trying to tell us that there was something going on with my brother something that medication and therapy and 
things of that nature couldn't help. this week's episode folks this is from the soundtrack of the nightmare before christmas behind me now we just heard from alan weber he's a risk fan who responded to our call for halloween stories and remember you can pitch us halloween sorts of stories any time of year by going to risk-show.com slash submissions just like alan did you know we'll put yours aside for next year before that, we heard an interstitial by Jeff Barr, and before that, we heard that story about the goddess Pele from Ryan Stroud at the Mystery Box show in Portland. I wrote to him, and I said, Ryan, is that really true? He wrote back, the fact is I actually and literally experienced every single thing in that story. I've had several experiences like that. Ones that bridge the material with the mythological. And in telling that story, I've learned that many people have. We just often don't talk about them. So, that's the final word from Ryan Stroud. I guess this episode is devoted to the goddess Pele. Maybe she'll, uh, she'll send a nice young Hawaiian fella my way. <laughs> Thanks to Lisa for sponsoring today's episode. Lisa is the ingenious mattress rated number one by Consumer Reports over all other direct-to-consumer foam mattresses. Lisa is 100% American-made and built specifically for you using their universal adaptive feel sleep technology. Simply stated, you're guaranteed the best sleep ever. Lisa donates one mattress to a shelter for every 10 they sell. They give you a 100-night risk-free trial. Love your mattress or they'll pick it up free and refund your money. Order now and save $75 when you go to leesa.com slash risk. That's lisa.com slash risk and use the promo code risk at the checkout. Here is where you can see Risk live next on November 11th. We're in New Orleans. Come on out, New Orleans. On November 12th, we're in Baltimore. On November 16th, we're back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. November 18th, we're in Chicago. Come on out, Chicago. On November 19th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And all of this information is at risk-show.com slash tour. And one last time, if you or someone you know has a great scary story that you might want included on next year's Halloween episode, you know where to find us, risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Take a risk. 
See that door ahead? See how it seems to be breathing? The door is waiting for you. It's waiting for you, my little bloodsuckers. This is the end. Shh. It's all over now. Look deeply into my eyes. Deeper. Deeper. You are in my power. Do exactly as I tell you. Move slowly, quietly, easily towards the door. Shh. Reach up to the giant doorknob. Shh. Carefully, ever so carefully, open the door. Scram! <laughs> <laughs>